the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. 340-9585 is our number locally. 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Uh, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Uh, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app uh, by using the hands-free. All you have to do is touch the big banner that says Call Now, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. I like Fridays especially. Uh, I like them because uh, we have Bible study tonight. Tonight we're going to finish... Uh, we're not actually going to finish, but we're going to finish most of Acts chapter 13. I think maybe I'll finish. Um, and then, um, uh, but it just starts the weekend in motion, a busy weekend for us. Uh, we have our pastor's discipleship class that happens on Saturdays. That's every other Saturday, and tomorrow's that day. Saturday morning prayer, Paul and I are always here. And uh, um, it, it's just in a Sunday course, we get to teach the Bible. We're going to be in Romans chapter 14. Uh, this coming Sunday here at Calvary Chapel, San Antonio. All of that to say, whenever you're busy serving the Lord, it is a good time. It's a good time. It's almost nonstop for us when the weekend gets here, and uh, we absolutely love it. So to wherever you go to church, get involved, uh, find somebody who looks like they're hurting, and be the comfort that God can send to them. Um, just be grateful in your service to the Lord. And church is the best place to do it. A couple of things. I've never done this before. In fact, I'm going to do it now. I want to thank uh, Linda and her husband. uh, Linda, you didn't give me his name, but uh, I did receive uh, the book that your son wrote. Uh, I absolutely loved it. I'm going to be talking more about it on the air um, as we get into April. Uh, as you know, April is Autism Week. Thank you for reminding me, or Autism Month, rather. Thank you for for reminding me of that. Uh, but your son, Stephen Tomasino, uh, has written a book. Uh, he is 27 years old. He is, was diagnosed as autistic uh, at the age of four. Uh, And in spite of the fact that doctors didn't think there would be much that he would be able to do, uh, he's got a a great imagination. He loves God's Word. Uh, He draws pictures. And in fact, um, I I was reading most of the book today, and um, it's just, it's magnificent. I'm going to be talking with our children's ministry workers, and, and we have a free school here as well. And um, I'm just absolutely thrilled with the way the Lord is using your son, uh, the kids that so many cast off and have no hope for. 
um, God is using him. So, Stephen, thank you for your faithfulness to God. Uh, Linda, thank you for making me aware of the book. It's the beginning of the autism adventure. Um, and I'll be talking more about it as I get a little bit more information about it. I know the book is available on Amazon, but uh, my job's here not to sell books, but I think we can use this book uh, as a ministry opportunity. So, Linda, thank you again very much for for uh, not only being a regular listener, you and your husband, but uh, for including me in sending the book. Thank you very, very much. The other thing I want to do before we get started is uh, right at the end of the program yesterday, um, we had a call from Johnson City, Texas. Uh, Wesley, he calls from time to time. Um, and I could hear the pain in his voice. The problem is he, he asked me to make a comment on the shooting and the the assault on guns in this country. Um, that, by the way, is going to get more and more ferocious. Uh, and and we, we had a minute left uh, in the program, and I, I didn't have time. I told him I would take that up uh, on the, the very opening of the program today. And so, Wesley, I, I pray that you're listening. Uh, this is something that we all really need to consider. We need to talk about. Now, as Christians, we should never be surprised when people don't want to take responsibility for sin. The world that we live in doesn't believe that sin is a problem. The world that we live in believes that environment is the problem or or government's the problem or a certain political party's the problem. We're, we're really quick to blame everybody else. Just look at your Facebook feeds if you don't believe that's true. There's no conversation. There, there's just shouting at one another via a keyboard. Uh, and the world will never, ever take responsibility for the things that, that we cause. And we, we Christians, we need not be surprised, not only that, Wesley, but we need to take advantage of these opportunities by standing up for what is true. Now, we talked about the shooting on Wednesday when it happened. Um, it, it, it's a senseless tragedy. Uh, since we have seen pictures of the um, gunman uh, who is being held uh, without bail, um, He's been assigned a public defender. That public defender was seen uh, sort of rubbing his back as he was going into uh, a court uh, a courtroom. Uh, and and she, now she's being vilified. How could you do that? This, according to his public defender, this is a broken young man with a broken mind and a broken heart. And while he knows what he did was wrong, he never really understood that the consequences of what he did would get to this point. And I point that out because she's put her finger on the problem that we have in this country. We have too many kids who can no longer relate to other people, to human beings. They close themselves in with their computers or their iPads. They're constantly playing video games. Those video games are often, almost always, involve a lot of death. You know, one of the things that happens when you play a video game, now I'm not a video gamer, so if I sound like I'm, I'm naive about this, I really am, but, but one of the problems with video games, you can kill people for hours and hours and hours, and then you can turn it off and start all over the next day. Well, what we've seen over and over with these kids who are guilty of causing mass casualties is we've seen them in their past they're antisocial they're heavily in the video games and they don't have the ability to relate to other human beings so they become loners and as they become more and more invested in what they're finding on the internet they're searching out um, sites that glorify violence, searching out terrorist websites. They become radicalized, and I don't mean radicalized in terms of radicalized Islam. They just become radicalized in their view. They, they, they depend on their computers for everything, and they're unable to relate. And they do this without parental supervision, Parents just give up. 
Oh, it's just video games. The kids are playing it. And we can't stop them after all. And the world will not take responsibility for that. Here's the question you asked, Wesley. Is it guns' fault? The answer is no, it's not guns' fault. I, I have no interest in guns. I never have. I've owned one gun uh, one time for about a day. Um, Paula found it in the closet in our house. And it's just, it's just not something we want in our home. Now, that doesn't mean I begrudge anybody who likes guns or, or collects guns their right to do so. It's just, I'm, I'm pointing this out only because I don't want anyone in this audience to think, well, I'm pro-gun and that's why he's thinking this way. No, guns aren't the problem. Guns are going to be available in this country, in this world, regardless of whether we like them or not. We're not going to make laws that limit access to guns, and even if we did, these kids who are so fascinated with murder would find other ways to do it. So this isn't a gun issue. This is a sin issue. And it's so easy to blame an object like a gun. We don't blame cars for drunk drivers, drivers even habitual drunk drivers. We blame the drunk driver. Why is it that we don't blame the circumstances that these kids fall into, the circumstances their parents allow, circumstances often even our public education system encourages? Why do we pick a gun, an inanimate object? And I understand the argument, well, if there weren't weapons that could kill lots of people quickly. Well, there's always going to be those weapons and they're always going to be available. So this isn't a legal gun issue. To show you how impotent our gun laws are, this is a young man that the FBI was already aware of. This was a young man who legally purchased his semi-automatic rifle. So the gun laws that we have have no value. Making more gun laws isn't going to make things better. What we need is, we need, I'm talking now to Christians, we need to declare that the answer to this problem, the answer is Jesus. It's just Jesus. And the skeptic would say, well, not everybody believes that way. Well, but it's the only answer. He is the only answer. And what we need to do, Wesley, this is for you, is not worry, not, not be convinced by a world that rejects the notion of sin and even worse, rejects the reality of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of this world. We need not be convinced by them that guns are the problem or that a Congress that won't do anything about the NRA lobby they're not the problem now they've got lots of problems but they're not the problem the man or the woman who grabs a gun and pulls the trigger is the problem and in our country we have already seen the devastation done by these kids who are loners and it's not going to stop. And there's no value in making these shrill arguments. Somebody has to do something. There's nothing that can be done. The issue is sin. And as long as we're treating the symptom instead of the disease, we're not going to make any headway. Let me say one other thing, and then I'll go to some questions. We who are Christians... Not only do we have the answers, but we know the times that we're living in. Paul said, but mark this, he's writing to Timothy. This is his last correspondence before he dies. Timothy, mark this, in the last days, there will be terrible times. The King James says perilous times. And then he goes on to describe the very 
world that we live in right now. None of this should catch us by surprise. It will always break our heart, and it should always break our heart. But it should never surprise us. Like I said, it's going to happen again and again and again. Because we're not dealing with the real problem. The real problem is we live in a world that calls good evil and evil good. We live in a world, our children have been raised in a world that rejects Jesus Christ. Two of my grandchildren, a grandson and a granddaughter, they live in a city uh, that I describe as Sodom and Gomorrah, completely given over to the homosexual agenda. You can't be a cop can't run for office if you're not gay. You just can't win. And my children, my grandchildren are being raised in that environment. And that's why every time we have the opportunity, we talk to them about Jesus. We remind them of what they know to be true. And in this world, we can't say that to other people's kids. And yet we have the answer for the tragedy that our country's involved in now. Uh, as hard as this is going to be here for people, please pray for this young man, this Nicholas Cruz. His public defender said he's broken. His mind is broken. His heart is broken. Pray for him. He'll never see the light of day. I had a friend of mine who said today, well, if he gets capital punishment, at least that'll be merciful. It, it won't be merciful. It's never merciful for somebody to die apart from Jesus Christ. Pray for him. Pray for the families who are hurting so deeply. And then go tell somebody about Jesus. My goodness, tell somebody that you have the answers. Wesley, I didn't want to do that quickly uh, in a minute yesterday, so I took the time to do it today. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, let's go to the first one here. It's an anonymous question. Uh, I don't think it's wrong to look at pornography because no one gets hurt. Well, anonymous, then you're not a Christian. It's just that simple. Uh, a Christian has to agree with Jesus Christ, and Jesus describes pornography as sexual immorality. And before you think or even dare say to anybody that no one gets hurt in pornography, I want you to think about all the marriages that are destroyed because of pornography, the families that are broken up because of pornography. I want you to think about all the distorted, perverted views of sex that are spread because of pornography. I want you to think that the women, I'm assuming you're a man, the women that you're looking at as you view pornography are somebody else's daughter or somebody else's wife. Some of those women are somebody else's mother. How can you say that no one gets hurt? Lastly, I'll say this in honest. It doesn't matter what you think. We Christians have to understand that what we think has no value. The only thing that has value in this world that we live in is what Jesus tells us to do. As a Christian, I'm just telling you now, you cannot believe that it's okay to view pornography and claim to be a Christian. Now, I know there's a lot of Christian men who are involved with pornography. Pornography gets a hold of your mind. It has an addictive quality. It doesn't excuse doing it. But the enemy is so glorified in that. He's so embedded in, in our inner being. And pornography gives him that door. But the real Christians, Anonymous, the real believers, when they fall and they look at pornography, they hate it. And they repent and they ask God to forgive them. And they try to do better. 
But don't for one minute think that no one gets hurt, and don't for one minute think that your opinion has any value or merit at all when it comes to pornography, because it simply does not. Probably won't get to it today, but I have a question from a, a wife whose husband is looking at pornography. Maybe when we get to that or in the next week, you can reevaluate whether you think anybody gets hurt. Here's a Christian, or here's a question, not a Christian, a question. It's a Christian question, but it's a question. From Darren, uh, he says, A friend told me that if parents have kids with disabilities, it's because of some sin they're in their parents' lives. Is that true? Darren, it is absolutely not true. And one of the things that we've got to do is stop this kind of silly thinking uh, in terms of, of how we view God. Can you imagine God punishing my children because of my sin? Now, each one of us is going to stand before God. Now, the sin of people in our lives, parents in this case, have consequences for kids, for sure. But is it even possible that a God who is abounding in love, a God who proved that he loved you by dying on the cross for you, is it even possible that he could say, well, I'm mad at this guy's dad or this guy's mom, so I'm going to punish him. I'm going to make him disabled. The answer is no, of course not. We live in a fallen world and disabilities happen. But this kind of nonsensical teaching that says that God punishes people, Jesus dealt with that. In the case of the Gospel of John of the man born blind, the prevailing thought way back then was, well, if a man was born blind, it's his parents' fault. Teacher, they asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it his parents sinned? And, and he said, no, neither he nor his parents sinned. These things just happen. And to understand that, you have to understand the nature and the character of God. So, Darren, tell your friend to stop telling other people that because it's simply not true. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is another anonymous question from... Um, um, anonymous, it says, should all Christian men be circumcised? Um, the answer is no. Um, you may be, but you don't have to be. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And that was the argument. In fact, it's been sort of one of the arguments that Jews have had relative to Christian converts from the very beginning of time. We're circumcised. It's a sign of our covenant with God. We think you need to be circumcised. So if you're going to believe in Jesus, if you're going to convert to Judaism, or if you're going to become a Christian, then you have to be circumcised. And simply not true. What matters, Anonymous, is the circumcision of the heart. Paul also says that in writing to the church at Rome. It's the heart that needs to be circumcised. Here's a way to think of this. Circumcision is an outward sign of a physical and spiritual reality. Circumcision was the covenant that Jews underwent on the eighth day of life, Jewish males, and it would be the sign that they are God's covenant people. Well, baptism is a symbol of for us that we belong to God. But it's not the, the, the baptism that saves. It's not being circumcised that makes you belong to God. It's the heart that identifies you as belonging to the Lord. So there's nothing that we can do or need to do outwardly. Think about circumcision for a minute. We've got just a minute or two left in this half of the program. Circumcision is the painful cutting away of the flesh. Many years ago, I was in a car wreck and was in the hospital for four days in North Hollywood, California. And um, um, one of the, the men, the grown man that they brought in to share the room with me at the time, he was in there for a medically necessary physical circumcision. I've never seen anybody in that kind of pain in my whole life. It is a painful cutting away of the flesh that indicates that we belong to God. Well, when Paul talks about circumcision of the heart... He's talking about the same thing. It's a painful cutting away of our flesh, not not in that area of our body, 
but cutting away the flesh that controls us, the flesh that has caused so much pain. Sometimes in cutting away that flesh, we have to say goodbye to relationships we've had our, own, our, our whole lives. It's painful to turn your back on people that are causing you to sin or encouraging you to sin. Sometimes it's cutting away the flesh that wants to do things that we know God disapproves of. And some of those things we've grown to enjoy so, so much that it hurts to stop doing it. Well, that's what circumcision for the Jew was. It was this outward sign that belonged to God. The problem is, inwardly, they didn't live like they belonged to God. They didn't demonstrate faith. That's why Paul, writing to the Galatians, says the only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. That is the sign of Christian circumcision in the day and age that we live in. So, Anonymous, I hope that helps answer your question. Should all men be circumcised? I am so grateful. Imagine how few people would give their heart to Jesus if I said to in the church or instead of being baptized, we're out of a circumcision. I don't think so. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the week. We would love your live calls. The phones have been quiet, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program. 340-9585. I was just informed that uh, Monday is a holiday and the radio station KSLR will be closed, so we will be doing a rebroadcast on Monday, back live on the air on Tuesday. So if you tune in looking for a live show on Monday, uh, you're going to have to wait until Tuesday this week uh, coming up. Here is a question from Randy. He asks, my question is about the walls in Nehemiah. Why were the walls so important? Randy, in the ancient world, uh, the only way a city could protect itself was with these huge walls. The walls would surround the city completely. They would be um, high enough and wide enough that they could be defended uh, fairly easily. And in this particular case, the walls had been completely run over in Jerusalem. Remember, uh, when Nehemiah picks up, uh, Israel has been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And Nehemiah gets this burden in his heart. His brother has gone to Jerusalem. And when his brother returns to Babylon, he says, uh, asks his brother, so tell me, what are things like? And his brother said, basically, the city's defenseless. Now, there had been a remnant of Jews that returned to rebuild the temple and to, to reestablish their homeland. 50,000 of them, in fact. But they were defenseless, and enemies uh, living all around them w- would have no problem destroying them. And God gave Nehemiah this, this supernatural burden to rebuild the walls. It was a defense, um, uh, the only way that they could defend the city and keep the people safe. Now, for us, all these thousands of years later, there, there's an important application. We need to have walls. You remember, Randy, when Nehemiah uh, first went into Jerusalem, um, he went by himself on horseback to sort of inspect the walls, basically saying, it's as bad as I heard that it was. And when he saw how, how badly the walls were, were, were down and how there was rubble everywhere, he came to the conclusion that, that it's worse than I even thought. And, and with this burden on his heart, he then would have instantly turned to the Lord in prayer. I said, I can't do this. I mean, the the rubble was on the foundation to such a degree that they couldn't possibly begin building. So he understood that the very first thing that he had to do was clear the foundation of the walls from the rubble. Now, for us, we need to make sure that our walls of defense are strong and in place that there's no rubble on them. We've got to make sure our homes are protected. We've got to make sure that our, the foundation in our homes is solid. For, 
for our ministry, what God has called us to. We've got to make sure that there's no rubble that's keeping us from being protected from the enemy who wants to destroy us. So we're going to get all the way down the foundation build up. I think one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul told us to examine our hearts daily to see whether we're in the faith is because that's the way to keep our walls solid and protected. You know, the devil will huff and puff and try to blow your house down. But if you don't give me opportunity, if your walls of defense are strong, what are those walls? Well, just a couple of them, the Word of God, worship, prayer. If your walls are strong, then the enemy can do nothing more than try to frighten you. But if your walls are strong, Jesus, of course, is our foundation. Jesus is our protector. If our heart is right with God, if we're with him relationally, then we're going to be protected from the attacks of the enemy. So the walls are important in the ancient world. The walls are still important today. Hope that helps. Here's a question that was just called in um, to the studio anonymously. Uh, How do you know if the Lord is asking you to do something or not? Um, Anonymous, a couple of things. One, uh, if you're in his word, um, you know what God's word says. And when I say in it, I don't mean just occasionally open the Bible and finding a sort of playing Bible roulette with a verse. But if you're in his word, he's going to speak to you in his word. Um, he's going to confirm it. Now, uh, let me just, because I don't know your situation, if you're married or what you're talking about, let me just give you an example of how Paula and I do it in our home. If the Lord is asking me to do something, um, uh, of course I'm in the Word all the time, Paula's in the Word all the time, my first thing to be sure is I ask Paula, Paula, would you prayerfully consider this? This is what I think God... Is, is telling me to do. And see, I don't want to do anything that she's not uh, in complete agreement with. Uh, we're one flesh. We're partners in this ministry that God has given us. And I'm not just talking about as Pastor Ron and Paula. But everything that we do in life, I want to know that we can walk together. So here's what I do when when I say, uh, Paula, I think the Lord is, is speaking to my heart. Um, I want her to pray about it. She knows I don't want her opinion I want her to prayerfully seek the counsel of God. And then when we get together, once the Lord has spoken to her heart, I know if our hearts are divided or if our hearts are united. And if she comes to me and she says, you know, Ron, I've prayed about this and I, I believe that's from the Lord. Well, then we just take off. We've got confirmation. The Lord has spoken to my heart. He's confirmed it through Paula. And our hearts are knitted together in it. Now, if you're not married... And there's no one, or, or God forbid, you're married to an unbeliever who isn't going to seek the Lord, and God wouldn't speak to them anyway. Um, be diligent in the Word. God will confirm to you. Uh, ask God for confirmation. I'm not talking about fleeces like Gideon. I'm just saying, okay, Jesus, you tell me to do it. I'm going to do it. I just need to know that this is you. He'll let you know, and he'll probably confirm it in church as the Bible's being taught. He may confirm it with just something somebody comes up and says to you. You know, somebody once came to me and said, you know, the Lord told me that you're going to be a pastor. And that looked like the farthest thing in the world from me, possibly. And yet he'd already spoken that to my heart. That was just one word of confirmation. And we've had so many words of confirmation over the years for those things. But here's the thing, Anonymous. Make sure that you're doing what you already know the Lord's told you to do. Make sure that you're spending time in His Word. Make sure that you're spending time in prayer. And there's no way that you will not know for sure if God's asking you to do something. One other thought, and this is equally important. We have a tendency as humans to think that, well, if God is asking us to do something, then it will be easy. There won't be any problems. There won't be any obstacles. Exactly the opposite is true. And I don't do a lot of things well, but the one thing I've done really, really well over the years is I've become so stubborn. If God's told me to do something, it doesn't matter what the circumstances look like. It doesn't matter what people say or think. I'm going to do it until he tells me to stop. And he's not going to tell me to stop until it's finished. So it's very, very important that we are faithful, even through trials, even through tests, 
First Corinthians 4.2 says it's required that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful. So you will be tested. And too often, when things get hard, somebody says, well, you know, I thought this was from God, but this isn't what I expected. And we give up. That's another thing. Have no expectations. Just do what God has told you to do. Make sure it's consistent with his word. And again, if you're married, make sure that you're in it heart and soul with your partner. 340-9585. Somebody would say, well, what if your partner never says yes? Well, that's when you pray for him or for her. That's when you pray for them. Leave them in God's hands. You know, when we came to San Antonio all those years ago, Paula did not want to come. We'd never been to Texas, and we didn't know anybody in Texas. Our family was there, our children. And yet I knew Paula would pray. Now, she struggled with it, wrestled with Jesus for a couple of weeks because she didn't want to hear. I think she knew that God had spoken to my heart. I think she could see it in my eyes and excitement that I had when I talked to her about it. But I, I knew because she loves God that she would pray. And she did. And we've been here for almost 23 years. Hope that helps. Here is another anonymous question that was called into the studio. Uh, were the Catholics the first people to start the ashes on the forehead at the beginning of Lent? Uh, I'm not uh, a church history expert, but I do believe they are. They're, they are um, the most prominent even now uh, worldwide in uh, celebrating Ash Wednesday. Uh, and uh, I believe the answer is yes. You know, religious people and Catholicism is a religion. That doesn't mean there aren't some saved Catholics. It's just harder to be. Um, they do religious things. Paul and I were watching uh, Wednesday night um, um, a news program and the, 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 the news anchor, it was a 10 o'clock show, and uh, it was a, a woman. She had a big ash on her forehead. It just looked so strange. But But... You know, that's sort of doing something religious, celebrating a symbol rather than the reality of something. I don't know this woman, so I don't know whether she's a real believer or not. That's none of my business. But uh, I believe the Catholics were the first people to start with the ashes on the forehead. Uh, um, Even now, uh, they are the most notable. Uh, I know that the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church, and much of the the um, Lutheran Church, the, uh, the, the real Christian branch of the Lutheran Church, um, also celebrates Ash Wednesday. Um, if there are others that do, I don't know. So that's the best I can do. I hope that helps. Here is a question from Anonymous, another Anonymous. Uh, I struggle with anger a lot. How can I overcome this? Uh, the first thing anonymous is you've got to hate it. You've got to recognize that that's uh, the bad fruit of your flesh. It has nothing to do with the Spirit of God. And every time you get anger, it's the flesh that wants to destroy you, by the way. Your flesh wants to kill you. It's the flesh taking control. And when you feel that anger welling up, we know what that feels like. We've got to kill it. We've got to kill it dead instantly. Because it's the only way we can walk in the Spirit. So let Jesus have his way in your heart. Stop making excuses for, well, I've always had a problem with anger. And instead, simply say, Jesus, I am so sorry. This is sin. It's sin against you. And then ask him to help you in the Spirit of God. When you say no to you, the power of the Spirit will come upon you. You also have to realize that the people that you are directing your anger towards, uh, you're sinning against them. Jesus loves them. And when you get angry, you are doing things and saying things that break his heart. I've seen anger eat people alive. I've seen too many people. Now, most of my experience in counseling has been with men when it comes to anger. But I've seen too many men hold on to anger like it was their right to do so. You don't know what's happened to me in my life. We've got to stop playing the victim and start understanding that the only one who should be angry is Jesus, and he chooses not to be. 
No matter what anybody has done to me in my life, Anonymous, I did worse to Jesus. The other thing I would ask you to do is to pray for the people that you're angry toward and do it instantly. You can't talk to Jesus at the same time getting your flesh in sin. So this is a battle. You've got to recognize it is a battle for your life. This, the enemy of God wants to destroy you and he's using your anger to do it. And so the, the, the response, the only rightful response for you to say, Lord Jesus, I have no right to be angry. And the minute we think that we can't control our flesh, remember now, self-control is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. The minute we think that we can't control something, we are admitting that we are in the flesh and not in the Spirit. I personally, Anonymous, think that identification, that this is from the, the enemy, this is from my flesh, uh, this displeases God, I think that identification is a huge asset in dealing with anger. Hope that helps. Jack wants to know, was the appearance of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration a, vis a vision, or was it really them? Jack, the evidence that we have suggests it was really them. In fact, there's nothing to suggest it was just a vision. James, John, and, and uh, Peter saw, and they instantly knew who it was. Um, Elijah and Moses were sent by God to tell Jesus the things that he was going to have to suffer. It was coming upon Passion Week, and um, they came to tell Jesus, this is what's going to happen. I find that fascinating, by the way. Jesus knew that he would suffer and die, but he didn't know the things that he would have to deal with. I always tell our church here at Calvary Chapel that if you let God prepare you, you're prepared for anything and everything that comes along. And this is a good example. Jesus knew generally what was going to happen. But they came and brought details. He was prepared. He was ready. But there's no evidence at all, Jack, that suggests that it was anything other than a genuine appearance of Moses and Elijah. Peter said, Lord, it's good that we're here. Let us build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And that's when the voice in the cloud resounded. This is my son, Listen to him, and then they were gone. So that's the answer. Here is another anonymous question. I had a bunch of anonymous questions today. Uh, why is it wrong to have sex if you and your partner are in love and committed to one another? Well, anonymous, let me answer by asking you a question. If you're committed to one another, why in the world wouldn't you be married? If your answer is, well, I'm not ready to be married yet. I've got a, uh, I'm in college or I'm trying to save money or we're just not ready to make that step yet. Well, then you have no business having sex. And anytime you, as a professing Christian, and I'm assuming that's what you are, anytime you have to ask, why is it wrong? When God said it was wrong, you don't really know who God is. It is always wrong to have sex if you're not married to the person you're having sex with, and that person must be someone of the opposite gender. Why? Because God said. Why do we need any other reason not to do something if, in fact, God said don't do it? Sometimes we act like God is trying to destroy all the fun in life. Instead, God says, I want to know what's best for you. I'm doing a wedding this coming, not not this Sunday, but, but a week from Sunday. And um, uh, one of the, the, the young men that I'm marrying, I've known since he was a little boy. Um, he's been in our church his whole life. Um, his family has served so fruitfully. And the, 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 the girl that God brought into his life, what a treasure she is. I've had more fun doing their pre-marriage counseling than I've had in a long, long time. And you know what's wonderful about them? They're both really, really naive about sexual things. They're never going to have sex with somebody besides each other. They're never going to have to worry about a sexually transmitted disease. They're never going to worry about the images that are going on in their partner's brain because of previous sexual experiences. And they've always known they were preserving themselves until married. Now, these aren't kids. They're young people, but 
They're in their mid-twenties. And they've saved themselves. Do you realize, Anonymous, how big the smile of God is as this wedding day approaches? What they did is they demonstrated to God that they love Him more than they love satisfying the desires of their flesh. You know, when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling, I hope this isn't too graphic for, for most of you, but, you know, I can see as we get closer and closer to the wedding date, I can see what I call a holy hunger, a holy lust that develops. God is preparing them for that very moment when they're ready, not a moment before, but the very moment that they're ready. Why? Because God is rewarding the sacrifices they made for him. You know, we're in the season of Lent. You've already listened to the program this week. You know, we don't observe Lent, and we're not big on these rituals and and things here. But, you know, Lent is something that we, we, we understand. Okay, I'm going to do something or give up something that, that God doesn't want me to have. Something I know it's bad for, I'm going to give it up for 30 days. Well, what value is there in that when, in fact, you're going to go back to that thing on the 31st day? These young people have resisted temptation. When I say you may kiss your bride... It will mean something to them. And on their honeymoon night, they're in for an experience that is impossible to describe. Because Jesus will be there. It always freaks people out when I say, Jesus will be there in your honeymoon night. If you've been pure and you've preserved yourself, Jesus will be there. You wouldn't want it any other way. So... It's wrong, Anonymous, because God says it's wrong. And if you have any problem with that, you need to get saved. 340-9585 for your live calls. How long we got? I think we're about five minutes here, so maybe time for a quick call. Here is um, a question from Rachel. Uh, She says, in Genesis 19, Lot offers his daughters to the crowd at his house. How can he be in heaven? Well, he's in heaven, not because he was perfect or didn't sin. We know he did. But he was righteous. Now, this is not a righteous act. In fact, this is an evil, wicked act. And when you say, how could he do this? The answer is, I don't know. Sin is insane. We do horrible things when left to our own devices. But we know he's in heaven because Peter calls him when Lot, that righteous man, and the reason he was righteous because he believed. He was so righteous it vexed him in his heart, his spirit, to see all the ungodliness around him. And yet it would vex him even more when he realized that he was part of that evil. So he did offer his daughters to the crowd, hospitality, protecting somebody who came into your home was of paramount importance. What Lot did was wrong. Um, I, I can't imagine how he ever would look at his daughters in the face again. You also know that both of his daughters uh, slept with him after they made him drunk. And the consequences are consequences that we still experience to this day. So there's no explanation, there's no excuse for it. I, I, one of the reasons that we can count on our Bibles is that it tells us everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is the ugly. So Lot did offer his daughters, and there's no excuse for it. God doesn't try to cover it up, nor is it something that any of us should emulate, of course. So Rachel, that's the best I can do. Let's go to Cindy calling from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I am wondering about when they were on the mountain. This goes back a couple questions. And Moses and Elijah appeared. And then Peter said, let me build three tabernacles. What was he meaning by building a tabernacle? I mean, wouldn't it take like a a couple of days to build something where they all just kind of hang out in the mountain together and wait or or what? I'm curious about that. Thank you, Cindy. uh, 
I'll just listen and get off the phone. Okay, thank you, Cindy. I can answer that one pretty quickly. Um, you know, Paul and I, we watch um, um, survival shows. I, I have no idea. I mean, we're the, the least survivor-type people in the whole world. But, you know, when, when a camper goes out or somebody gets up, the first thing they want to do is they want to build a shelter. And so that's all it was. It wasn't a tabernacle, a religious thing. It was, it was just build a shelter. And here's what Peter was doing, and I love this about Peter's heart. Uh, he was seeing two of his heroes, Moses, the, 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 the man the most revered by Jews, the, the walking symbol of the law, and Elijah, the prince of prophets. Uh, so he had the law and the prophets before him. And what he was saying is, Lord, let me build some shelters real quickly. And, and if I do that, maybe they'll stay. He just wanted to stay and enjoy it. That's all Cindy he wanted to do. So it wasn't a big construction project. It wasn't something it was going to take days to do. He was just talking about putting up a shelter uh, so that they would be covered and safe and comfortable, hoping that then they would be able to stay. I mean, if I had a chance to hang out with Moses, I'd have a bunch of questions. Same thing is true with Elijah. And, and Peter and the others, being Jews, would be even more so inclined. So this was just a shelter to, to cover them from the elements, um, trying his best to make them comfortable. It was a good heart that he had, but the Father from Heaven, when his voice resounded, this is my son, listen to him, God was saying it's Jesus. The Law and the Prophets were all about, only about, and pointed to Jesus, listen to him. Hey, thanks for a great week on the program this week. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Remember, Monday we'll have a rebroadcast. Have a great holiday and have a great weekend church this week. See you then next week. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.